0: Jesus, anoint his words and his thoughts and direct him in your mighty name. Amen.
1: Amen. I'm going to pray quickly, not so much for you lot, but for me. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you that we can gather in your name, in person, and in a building we are your temple. We pray, Father, as we search your word that you would build your temple. Pray, God, for clarity of thought, clarity of expression, hearts to receive, and your spirit, Lord, to empower us to get all that we can out of your word. In Jesus' name. I've said this before, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it again because it's important. For this message, I want you to think about every argument, every conflict you've ever had. Every one, I guarantee, it had one cause. What do you think it was? Selfishness. Selfishness. That's a great. That's a great answer. What else? Pride. What else? Misunderstanding about what? Sorry. expectations. Every conflict you've ever had has been almost every conflict, there have been one or two that that happened, but almost every conflict have been about unmet expectations. You expected A and got B, or somebody expected A from you and got B. Conflict is about an unmet expectation. There's 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 a jarring, there's a conflict that happens when you expect something to happen and it doesn't happen that way. You'd agree? Okay. And it's, it can be tricky to deal with an unmet expectation when it's a person who hasn't done what you've expected them to do or where somebody's grumpy with you because you haven't done what they expected you to do. That's tricky. What happens if the unmet expectation is our expectation of what God was supposed to do. What do we do with that? That becomes challenging. So this morning I'm going to be speaking about expectations, the good, the bad, and the godly. Some of us old enough to to know that that was a reference to a Western movie called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. This is about the good, the bad, and the godly. And and we're going to look at an incident from the life of Jesus where he speaks about people's expectations and he teases out some ideas about how expectations shape our reality and how we respond to expectations not being met is an indication of where we are and where we need to get to. So I'm going to be reading um, this morning from an extract from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. But before I get there, I'd like to just consider one or two introductory thoughts. The first is, I don't know whether you've ever thought about it this way, but faith is an expectation. Faith is the hope of things unseen. The confident expectation of things that haven't yet come to be. That's Ray's paraphrase. You won't find it exactly like that in the Bible, but it's close. And, and when, when that expectation isn't fulfilled, what happens to our faith? Now, we recently had uh, Mark Watson in, in grave illness, he really had COVID badly, he was in intensive care, he was on oxygen, and the whole church, I loved the way that, that it was put, grabbed the sword and rallied, and, and prayed earnestly, and we had the most amazing prayer meeting, and you could, you could feel the faith in the atmosphere, and God intervened and miraculously healed him, and in a matter of days, he went from the intensive care on oxygen to back to work, that's God, That's incredible. We need to be grateful for that and we need to rejoice in that. But there are those among us who have not yet received their healing. There are those among us who were massively affected by the recent unrest. There are those among us who've lost their jobs, who've suffered private catastrophe. We need a faith, we need a a theology that can hold both the confident expectation of God to intervene and the resilience to cope with what happens when God doesn't come through the way that he expects, because he always comes through. It just often doesn't look the way we think it's going to look. So we're going to look at that this morning in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. To place this in context, Jesus had just sent his disciples out. he just commissioned, rather, his disciples to go out, preach the good news, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead. So Jesus gives his disciples this commandment. He says, go out and do these things that are evidence of the kingdom arriving and advancing. And right at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11... This is what happens. Actually, an interesting thing about that commissioning, he says, after he commissions them, he says, if you're not worthy to pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. If you're not prepared to pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. And I thought to myself when I was preparing, that must have sounded so strange. Because at the time that he gave that commandment, he hadn't yet told them he was going to be crucified. Can you imagine how confusing that was? So so your rabbi, Jesus, says, I'm giving you authority to do all these things, to represent me in the most profound way, but but be prepared to die the most gruesome way imaginable that is reserved for the worst of the worst traitors. I can imagine that that would have disrupted their expectations a little of what it looks like to be... um, an ambassador of the kingdom. See, Jesus, Jesus messes with our expectations all the time. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news. Preach to them, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, born of the woman born of woman, there is arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven Is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, yet they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children, by her deeds. Sorry, by her children's uh, a different incident. Let's look at the text in more detail. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them and said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why would John ask that question? Why would John say, are you the one or should we look for another? John um, is a relative of Jesus. Mary, Jesus' uh, Jesus' mom, and Elizabeth, John's mother, were related to each other. When Mary and and Elizabeth were both pregnant, one, Mary with uh, Jesus' Elizabeth was John, they met, and and John left for joy in his mother's womb. The Holy Spirit fell upon Elizabeth, who started declaring the glory of God, and and that that Jesus, the unborn Messiah, was the Lord of Israel. Mary responds, filled by the Holy Spirit, and starts declaring what we have come to know as the Magnificat, um, which is a declaration of God's goodness and a celebration that the long-awaited Messiah has arrived in her. And the, the text says that Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth then stayed together for another three months. I guarantee that in John's family, that story was told around the dinner ta- table many times. There is absolutely no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that that the story of of Mary and Elizabeth meeting with one another and John leaping for joy in his mother's womb became woven into the fabric of their family's story and into the story of John, the emerging prophet. It would have become part of who he was. At the very least, at the very least, John had an expectation that there was something about Jesus that was going to change the world. Why would he ask this question? Think then of of Jesus' baptism. Um, John is baptizing people in the Jordan. The Pharisees are grumpy about this, but but the people regard him as a prophet. There's there's all this tension about it. John sees Jesus and, and declares that this is the Lamb of God says, I'm not worthy to undo his shoelaces, his sandals. He hears the audible voice of God speaking from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. He sees the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descend on Jesus. Why does he think to ask his disciples, go ask this Jesus, are you the one or are we to expect another? Makes no sense. It makes sense only if we read that sentence when he was in prison. See, John found himself in circumstances where he'd been declaring the kingdom of God, This Messiah arrives, and and the kingdom that, that John was declaring, and he wasn't wrong, he was right, was you brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the judgment to come. John was saying, when the kingdom comes, judgment comes with it. And there's going to be a reckoning for the wicked. He was right. He got his timing wrong. But he was right. So, so John sits in prison. and, and, And in his mind, I can imagine him saying, well, if Jesus is the Messiah... Why are the wicked not being judged? If Jesus is the Messiah, why hasn't the, the heel of Rome been removed from the throat of Israel? Because if I read the Old Testament prophets, the, the son of man who is to come is going to vanquish the enemies of Israel. It says that. And will reign like David did. And David was a, a conquering warrior. He, he, John, was expecting somebody to come and sought out the wicked. I also think that it's not unrealistic that he expected to be broken out of prison. And that wasn't an unrealistic expectation. Both Peter and Paul um, have uh, played leading roles in um, Prison Break Supernatural Edition. Why not John? So John's, John's expectations of what the Messiah looked like were shaken to the core, and and his disciples say, "Are you the one, or are we to expect another?" And David Stern, a Hebrew scholar from from Israel, points out that Jesus, in Jesus' response, he gives six signs that Isaiah speaks of as as signs of the Messiah to come. I'll read them for you. He makes the blind see, Isaiah 29 and 35. He makes the lame walk, Isaiah 35 and 61. He cleanses lepers, Isaiah 61. He makes the deaf hear, Isaiah 29 and 35. He raises the dead, Isaiah 11. And evangelizes the poor, Isaiah 61. By giving this response, he was making it absolutely clear to the disciples of John. No, I'm the guy. You don't have to look for another. Stern points out that that Isaiah goes on to give a seventh sign of the coming Messiah to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Stern says that maybe Jesus didn't mention that one because John was not going to be set free. Maybe he was communicating delicately, maybe even in a form of a code John, you're not going to get out of prison. And he didn't. He died. He was executed. He was beheaded in prison. There's another way of reading it, though, and that is that John expected judgment. And the stories he was hearing, those six signs, were all about compassion and mercy. Maybe, maybe, if John had heard more stories of judgment, he wouldn't have asked the question. But but what John missed, and I understand why he missed it, is that the first time Jesus came, he came in mercy. The second time, he'll come in judgment. And 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 John, being in the midst of that, missed it. So after gently rebuking John, where he says, blessed is is the one who is not offended in me, Jesus addresses the crowds about John. Interestingly, after his disciples have left. So his disciples don't get to hear this part to tell John. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. If you read about reeds in the Old Testament, it's a a weak thing. It's not a strong thing. You, You can't lean on a reed, it breaks. So he's saying, did you expect to see someone weak? No, exactly the opposite. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. No, he had a... Uh, uh, garments made of camel hair that's super scratchy um, what then did you go out to see a prophet yes I tell you and more than a prophet this is he of whom it is written behold I send your messenger before your faith before your face who will prepare your way truly I say to you among those born of woman there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the moment that Jesus was speaking, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Among those born of of woman, there is no one greater than John. So, So Jesus says... Those who've had natural birth, and Jesus is excluded from this because he had a supernatural birth, among those who had a natural birth, no one is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. What does that mean? That means that in the process of rebirth, we acquire a greatness... That exceeds that of John, which is wild. John was like no one else. He was a a, a desert dwelling, locust munching, fire breathing, fearless proclaimer of the coming kingdom. He faced down kings. It says that he comes, he was Elijah, he's not the reincarnation of Elijah, but he comes in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah faced down kings. Elijah um, stood up on his own against the prophets of Baal, had such an engagement with the supernatural realm that he was able to call down fire from heaven to consume a soggy offering. And he wiped out all the prophets of Baal in one day. John was not to be messed with. And Jesus says of his disciples, of his followers, of the reborn army he was to call, you and I, look at John, you've seen nothing yet. You've seen nothing yet because in in our rebirth we acquire the greatness of Jesus. And the greatness of John cannot compare to the greatness of Jesus. And what is holiness? What is being holy about? It's when our lives start to reflect the greatness we've been given. And that's reflected in our expectations too. From the days of John the Baptist until the kingdom of he- until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. There are two ways to read that. The one is to say that from, from the time that John started announcing the kingdom to come, Supernaturally wicked forces and evil men rose up to oppose it, suffered violence. And one of the ways that they rose up to oppose it was they took John captive and ultimately beheaded him. Another great example is Jesus was captured and crucified. Another example is every one of the disciples, bar Judas, who hung himself, was executed for his faith. there's a violent response to the advance of the kingdom. And and we need to recognize that. Spurgeon says, unless we understand that we're in a state of war, prayer makes no sense. You have no idea what the purpose of prayer is. So there's another way of reading this, and, and I mention it for completeness because it's, it's quite popular, especially in charismatic Pentecostal circles, is to say that uh, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force is a reference to believers who, who forcefully take hold of the kingdom and advance it by, by violent means. I don't think that that's what the text says. It certainly doesn't line up with the end of chapter 11, but that is an alternative reading. Jesus then goes on to say, and this is, everything else was introduction, this is the part I actually want to deal with, but I'll be brief. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came eating and drinking and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. When you see a but in a text, look at what precedes it, because you're going to see what is being contrasted. Here, Jesus contrasts the army of the reborn, those who are greater than John in the kingdom of heaven, with the children in the marketplace who don't do certain things, which we're going to look at in a moment. So, so it's important to understand that what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting those who believe in him and are reborn and the, the the people to follow. If you've ever watched children playing, or if you're young enough to remember what that was like, that was funny. Come on, a um, great job. Yeah. Uh, you'll remember that playing involves engaging in a world of make-believe. And Jesus is describing here two sets of games that kids would play in the marketplace. And the one, they would make believe that they're at a funeral. In fact, there was a, there was a, there was a game that they would play called um, Bury the Grasshopper. Which, which was about play-acting, play like they were at a funeral. And funerals being a very somber thing, there were certain songs that, that were familiar with, with um, Jewish children at the time. They'd have known that song belongs to a funeral. So if they were play-acting that they were at a funeral and that song came on, somebody started singing that song, they'd know the words and they'd sing along. Jesus says, this group of kids refuses. They hear the song and they say, We're not playing with you. If if you've had small children, you'll know that when they decide not to play a game, there's a certain physical attitude that arrives, and there's a weaponized lower lip. And and sometimes a square mouth and loud noises. So so Jesus is saying this bunch of people are like kids who are invited to, to play act in a funeral and they say, no. And then there's, there's another game that they played. They played like they were at a wedding. And in, in Hebrew society and among the Israelites, weddings would last for days. And there would be songs that would be sung at weddings and the kids would know what those songs were. And they'd know the tune. So if somebody played a flute with that, with that song, they could sing along. They would know what it is. And these kids, weaponized lower lip, crossed arms, said, no, we won't play. And Jesus says this. The kids who listened to the funeral song, the dirge, said, we won't play. That's like listening to John preach, because John was talking about death and judgment. And you didn't want to have anything to do with him. You said he's got a demon. Then along comes Jesus. His first miracle is to turn water into wine at a a wedding, a celebration. He's representing the kingdom as a joyous event, as one where there's celebration and dancing and happiness and joy, and the Pharisees cross their arms stick out their lower lip and say, no. And Jesus says in this text, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we represent the kingdom, either as in coming judgment or as a, a time of joy and celebration and hope, because the Messiah, the bridegroom, is among us. It doesn't matter. You will have none of it. Why? Because none of those things, neither of those things, look like the expectations of the Messiah in the hearts of the Pharisees and their response to the expectation not being meant is a weaponized lower lip and crossed arms see the Pharisees expected God to act like them whatever that was they looked down their noses at people who didn't act like them and and you'll agree with me looking down your nose is a very narrow perspective can't see much The Pharisees recast God in their image because they said in their hearts, this is not what I expect the Messiah to do. Therefore, we will have no part in it. And that entire generation, with very few exceptions, rejected the Messiah because their messianic expectations were not met. They were expecting a political savior. They were expecting someone who would do what Pharisees did and it didn't happen. And they missed out. The truth is, and we've explored that in the series several times, God is not like us. He doesn't become more and more like us. In the adventure of following God, we're supposed to look more and more like him. That's the whole purpose of the process. Our confident expectation is that God will be God irrespective of circumstances. And even when they don't make sense, he is good. Jesus concludes the passage with these words, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Um, This would have been a familiar idea to the hearers of Jesus' words. If you read Proverbs, wisdom is, is personified as a woman who calls out in the street saying, Listen to me. And he says, wisdom is justified by by her deeds. What does that mean? It means, don't trust what people say, trust what they do. You want to see what people truly believe? Watch what they do. He says, you you may be the ones who, who reject John and his message. You may be the ones who reject me and my message. But it's okay, because... Wisdom will be demonstrated by what you do. So I'll ask you, will we be like those bratty kids in Jesus' illustration and when those around us are mourning, we won't mourn? When those around us, like this morning with the kids dancing, when they're rejoicing, will we rejoice? Because both of those are images of the kingdom. Or are we going to weaponize our lower lips, cross our arms, and say, that's not for me? Part of the process of becoming holy is to plug into the kingdom and to reflect what that's like. And and my hope for myself and my hope for all of us, for Glenridge, is that we would truly reflect the kingdom in words and in deeds. That, that that the way we live out there looks like the kingdom. Because we've been given the greatness of Jesus. Jesus says that, that fire-breathing, locust-munching, hairy, camel-coat-wearing prophet who doesn't care at all about what people think that's not a high enough standard that's our calling and, and I really pray as we proceed with this holy um, series we're not finished yet that that will become more and more part of who we are in Jesus name cool cheers guys and, and I'd like to pray for us in that Because um, until we get past that, we can't grow. Until we come to terms with that pain. And and let me tell you, God is not embarrassed by that. God is not embarrassed that you're offended or or that you you are disappointed because he didn't do what you expected him to do. That doesn't bug God in the least. I can tell you with conviction because the Bible is full of those stories. He'd rather we're honest. So let's pray. Yeah? So glad Ray picked up on that, because that's exactly
2: what I was going to get up and say. It says that blessed are those who are not offended by God. Yeah. Offended mean, tripped, means tripped up, stumbled, enticed to sin
1: because of Jesus. Because
2: yeah. you didn't meet your expectations. And that could be in so many
1: different ways. And as Ray prays to right now, I really trust God would unlock something so that we can step forward and step out of where we are. In Jesus' name. Thanks, Ray. Cool.
0: Hi, everyone. I just felt God just reminding me what he's done during worship and nagging, again um, being offended with God I've walked that I've gone through depression being angry with God dragging myself to church um, God didn't do what I expected him to do for years I prayed for a child and I never felt pregnant and then God gave me Our little boy, David, that many of you know, that we adopted. Mm. And that yearning and deep desire in my heart, I can honestly say it's not there because I've got my child. And I know at our wedding, um, Sheena MacDonald prophesied over us that our our children would bring people into our home and would bring people into our lives and open up the kingdom for us to minister to them. And we never had those children. And I was like, well, we're your promises, God. Mm. And God has given us a little boy who is completely open, who loves people, who loves to engage with them, and who has opened up doors that if we had had our own like flesh and blood children, those doors would not be open. He's opened up doors that we could never open on our own. And he's ushered in his kingdom, not our kingdom. That's good. So, uh, yeah.
2: Just before, um, before Ray um, prays, I just wanted to give a little encouragement just to build the faith in the house before he prays. Um, Zoe had a little bit of a difficult time at lockdown. She had a bit of fear that crypto. And we had to walk that through. I had Ruth tapped me on the shoulder when Zoe was dancing and said we need to pray that she has the victory crown put on her head. And Stan pulled her over and said I need to pray that you have the victory crown over her head. Yeah. So just just, to build faith in the house that God is here, he is. that He's heard our voice and uh, he wants to put the victory crown on your head whatever that circumstance is when you worshipped, when god spoke to you today and you might have doubted and if you said is it do you hear me he wants to put that victory crown on your head
1: that's cool father thank you for your kindness Thank you for your love to us. Thank you, God, that you are in all and above all and so far greater than we could possibly hope or imagine. Thank you that you are love. Father, I pray for those of us who have been disappointed with God and because you haven't come through the way that, you, that they expected, that we expected. I pray, God, for healing. I pray, God, for a transformed heart and mind. I pray, God, for transformed circumstances. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a profound miracle in the hearts and minds of, of those gathered here this morning. That, that everything that looked like defeat would be transformed into victory. That we would arise in the confident hope that if it's, if it's not good yet, it's because it's not the end yet. We thank you for your miraculous intervention in so many ways, in so many respects, and we thank you, God, that that in you all things work together uh, together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.